Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the officially unofficial Def Leppard podcast, Def Pod. This is part one of our review of the Adrenalize album. And in this episode, I'll be joined by Andy Gibbons and Mark Cookson, and we will be discussing side one of the album and doing so with a particular focus on how the album was received in the UK. However, in just one week's time, in episode 27, I'll be joined by Judy Nunes and Johnny De La Pena for part two, and we will discuss side two of this album, and we will do so with a Latin American, Mexican, Dominican Republic, and United States of America perspective, all rolled into one. All global bases are covered for our Adrenalize review. Check out the show notes for this episode for info on where you can find Mark and Andy. But without further ado, let's go. With me today to discuss Def Leppard's marvellous 1992 album Adrenalize, and in particular side one of that record, are a couple of huge Def Leppard fans, namely Mr. Andy Gibbons and Mr. Mark Cookson. Now this is certainly a big Northern Fellas episode of Def Leppard, and I want you gentlemen to know that if you prefer that I call you both sir, then I'm intimidated enough by your sheer physical prowess and your encyclopedic Def Leppard knowledge that I'm more than happy to do so. So before we crack on talking in detail about Def Leppard, Mark, how are we doing today? And are you looking forward to discussing this album? I'm very much looking forward to discussing this album. Yeah, um, it's it's a period that I bloody love in Leopard, Leopard history. But yeah, I'm doing very, very well. Ready for the weekend. Been a hard week. So looking forward to kicking back and discussing it tonight. Excellent. And Andy, are you ready and raring to go? Yeah, I'm ready. I've spent uh, spent all day going through old reviews and I've been looking at old mags and just refreshing my mind on it all. Which certainly takes you back. I mean, it doesn't seem like 30 years ago, does it? We were young whippersnappers. We're still looking good now, though, fellas. So, you know, we can still we can still talk about this positively. <laughs> I've got yeah. the air anyway still, so it's all right, you know. You have you've got enough hair for all three of us, Mark. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Each album review episode of Def Leppard Pod begins with an opening question for our guests. Today's opening question is this: Although successful and selling about seven million records and considered the Lep's last commercially mainstream hit album, Adrenalize isn't considered in the same lofty heights as the big two classic Def Leppard albums, Pyromania and Hysteria, in general. The band seemingly fall in and out of love with it, and um, some consider it an album that was already out of date when it was released in 1992 in the grunge era. And arguably as well, it doesn't have that cult following of some albums like, you know, maybe a slang or a high and dry. However, loads and loads of Def Leppard fans absolutely love this. And I know that, you two in particular love this album and it's definitely got its own bit of magic. So the opening question is, and I'll come to you first, Andy, what is it that makes this album so special? I think for me, I mean, I got into the band with Hysteria in 87. So having heard Animal and then getting the album, you know, I never really experienced that that high, that chance to look forward to something like this. So that, what, two and a half years? from in the round it just seemed like forever and I think the hype just kept building and building because the press were all over it you know with the success of this theory 
And, uh, you know, I can remember, if you remember the BB Steel album, and also uh, Slade, Radio Wall of Sound, if you remember those. I can even remember Kerrang! were that desperate to try and latch onto something through Def Leppard. They were wondering if, you know, with these Def Leppard demos, with these tracks in the studio, and of course they weren't. But I think that's what makes it special, is the hype for it. But then not only when it eventually got released, it's not just the album, it's the whole package. It's the tour. It was the chance to see him live for the first time. It was all the singles. It was all the exposure all over the media. I mean, you know, we've probably never seen anything like that in this country for them, and probably won't again. You know, I mean, they were, they were backed from the top, from the biggest corporation in the in the country. You know, with the BBC, they were all over everything, and I think that's what made it so good. And really, that era just bleeds into retroactive. It bleeds into vault as well. So you know, it, it runs for three years. It's not. It's not just that. That March '92. It's three years worth. So, Mark, what Andy said there, does any of that resonate with you? Absolutely. But for me, it can all be encapsulated in one word, which is nostalgia. Mm. Adrenalized period was probably without a doubt when I was firing on all cylinders. You know, 17 years old, working a job which was paid well, had loads of money, you know, single. It was it was a good life. You know, 1992 was one of my favourite years. Uh, and Leopard were a huge part of that. Um, the single, the album, the tour. Then, you know, then the next year we had Don Valley. You know, it was it was all, as, as Andy said, it was that three-year period from 92 to 95. It's utter magic as far as I'm concerned. And, of course, the main thing is my man Viv. You know, that's a, a big part for me. Well, it's going to be interesting how we talk about Viv. Uh, well, Vivian Campbell, for those people who are listening who are massive Def Leppard fans. Well, welcome, by the way. Yeah, because obviously Vivian Campbell doesn't feature on this album at all because it was written as a four-piece. Yeah, he is in our minds. You, when you very much picture the Adrenalize era Def Leppard, you very much picture Vivian Campbell in there, you know, from when he first comes on at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert to then the tour and Don Valley and everything. And he's he's a massive part of the Adrenalize story, even though he's not actually on that album. Mark, was it the same with you as Andy? Was this the first tour that you saw Def Leppard on as well, or had you seen them before? No, I saw them in 88. Uh, my 13th birthday present in 88 was uh, 18th of April. Yeah, 18th of April, 88 at um, Birmingham NEC. I was yeah. right at the back and incredibly disappointed. Um, I have to say, it was it was not the greatest gig from a from a 13-year-old Marky. So that, that was going to be my question, is how does the, the 1988 gig compare to your when you went to see them then in 1992? No comparison. 92 just wasted all over it, in my opinion. You know, the 88 gig was too, everything was pushed up in the mix far too loud. It was just a horrifically loud, distorted gig. So you didn't get any of the subtleties. Again, from my vantage point where I was, which is like three quarters of the way round up in the gods, the 92 was sonic perfection. And you saw them first on the Adrenalized Tour. I did as well. Where did you first see them? Mine was Sheffield. And funnily enough, it was the that was the show with all the issues, all the sound problems. So it was quite a unique gig to go for, to, really, because not only did the, they had to cut the encore short, we got from the inside, which I know you discussed in the last... Um, retroactive special but we got from the inside which was special and even though i guess from the band's point of view it was a total disaster i thought 
it was fantastic. And just going back there to what Mark said, as you know, I've got you know a few bootlegs from both Hysteria and Adrenalize. Adrenalize tour for me is the, the best sounding tour that they've done. Not not just the sound that you get from the front of the house, but Joe's voice as well. That is that is peak, I think. You know, and I think Rick's drums as well. That that had improved from what it was on the Adrenalize out from the Hysteria tour. Sorry. And, you know, I don't think there's any comparison sound-wise. I know people will say, oh, but that features Steve Clark. But I think sound-wise, front of house was far better adrenalised. And, yeah, that, that in the round show was unbelievable. And luckily enough, I got tickets to the fan club, so we were right at the front, you know, where the ramps okay. come down to the floor. So yeah, yeah. it was fantastic. The interaction that we had was unbelievable. That's a really interesting point that I've never thought of about the sound, and Rick in particular, because it is mad when you think, when they go on that world tour in 1987, you know, if it's New Year's Eve 1984 going into 1985, that he loses his arm. In terms of he hasn't been without his arm for that long. And then obviously, you know what technology is like? You can have massive, massive quantum leaps within a couple of years. So in terms of the actual, his ability to play the drums with one arm and also what the, the technology would have been like by 1992, compared to 1988 is massive and something I've never actually considered before. So it's a very good point that. Mark, you've already touched on it then. What's your relationship and history with this album? And that might be anything to do with, you know, how your your thoughts of it have developed over the years, whether you go back to that nostalgia, whatever you want. This is a free hit for you, Mark. So pretty, I know you love this album. Uh, you sent some cool pictures as well with all your adrenalized gear <laughs> around, which is great. So I know you absolutely adore this album. Yeah, this is an album which frequently features on um, my playlist. It probably is played as much as on through the night on my uh, on my on my little iTunes. I have to say, I don't listen to Hysteria much anymore because those songs are just so firmly ingrained. I don't kind of revisit it as much. But Adrenalize, I don't know. As I said, it's, it's a nostalgia thing. It, it takes me back to that perfect time. I can see the faults in the album. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and I'm sure we'll touch on those later. And there are a few faults in the album. But it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Um, it's It was New Leopard. It was brand new mm. Leopard. Hair down to me tits. Into music in the <laughs> biggest possible way. You know, really enjoying the lifestyle that came with being a rock fan in the late 80s, early 90s. And just remembering the excitement. And it was massive excitement um, for the new Def Leppard product. We didn't know what it was going to sound like. Was it going to be Hysteria Part 2? As it turns out, yes, it is. Was it going to be something different? We just didn't know. Absolutely phenomenal. And side one contains probably the most fan-voted best Def Leppard song, White Lightning. But again, I'm sure we'll touch on that later. To switch your brain off album, Hysteria yeah. Part 2, but also a step on from Hysteria. Side 2 gets all the more adult-themed material. It gets you stand up. You know, it it gets have you ever needed. And that's the more that's the step onwards. It was almost like side one is hysteria part two. Side two, here's a step up to the what's coming next, basically. Uh and I'm sure that's kind of how they approached it from a, a stacking point of view. I don't know. I don't know, but I, I bloody love it. 
Andy, going on to you then, what, what's your relationship with this album? I wasn't really into anybody then, any bands apart from Dead Leopard. And I had no idea what they were going to sound like. So the waiting to see what Adrenalize was going to be like, you know, in your mind, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be a steam? But, you know, so, you know, going back to all the uh, the interview stuff from the time, they talked about a harder edge. It was going to be a mix of Pyro and uh, High and Dry, the production of Hysteria. They talked about how the songs were going to be up and more direct and in your face. You know, even talking about stuff like uh, Armageddon and Sugar sort of being the, the template. And I think when you actually hear the album, that's exactly what they do. The songs are more immediate, with the exception mm. of White Lining, obviously. But I've got to be honest, when I first put the album on, I was a bit disappointed in it. I don't know what I was expecting, whether I was expecting something like Hysteria, but I thought I'm, I'm struggling to get into this. And it did take me a few weeks, you know, to sort of appreciate it even more. And I think that's probably down to me because I just kept comparing it to Hysteria. You know, I was thinking, oh, the first three tracks aren't as strong as Women Rockets Animal. And then I think over time, that just softened. You're not carrying the baggage anymore compared to something else. That's irrelevant now, is it? And 30 years down the line, I can put it on. And, you know, I love listening to it now. It's such a quick, easy album to listen to. You're just straight into it. No messing about. And, and that's why I like it. And also, it's probably one of the last sort of collaborative albums that they've done where they've got a theme running through it where it's the similar sound. You know, mm. and then after that, they changed to be more diverse. So, this is probably the last of that that era of Def Leppard that, uh, that falls into that, the uh, hysteria and paramania style of one theme, this is how we sound. And, you know, yeah, now I love it. Some really good points there. And in a moment, we are actually going to go through that sound because what we're going to do is we're going to go through the five tracks on side one, song by song, so we'll get a chance to talk about them and talk about um, that sound. But... This is where you get to put your feet up for a minute here, fellas. Um, you know, you can have a little nap if you want for the next sort of three or four minutes because what we're going to do is going to provide a little bit of context um, and also we'll use the band's own words to provide some context for this album. So just a little bit of background to it. Okay, so firstly, Adrenalize is Def Leppard's fifth album and it's recorded official worldwide release date is the 31st of March 1992, but we know it was released here in the UK on the 30th of March. That's right, Andy, isn't it? I'm going to come to you as a fact check. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Excellent. The official okay. sites always talk about the 31st. They never mention the 30th. Well, okay, so here we're, we're waving the flag now for the 30th of March, 1992. What a day. <laughs> okay, and then 31st of March, that was a good day for the rest of the world too. Six of the 10 tracks were released in total as singles or singles that uh, charted, certainly, across different parts of the world. So you never necessarily got six in every single market for once of a better phrase but there were six singles there was also one radio promo single and video that was also released in the us that um, wasn't able to chart now we're going to look into what those songs are across this episode and the second episode looking at adrenalize the majority of the album was recorded as a four piece it was recorded after the death of guitarist steve clark on the 8th of january 1991. Now, even though it's recorded in the main after Steve's dad, he does actually have a big influence on this album. He's got writing credits on six of the 10 songs which were written before he died. 
Now, in regard to writing credits, we've got Mutt Lang as well on here. Now, he's not the producer-producer. He's the executive producer on this album, but he was included in the songwriting sessions. And he's got a songwriting credit on all but one song. The only one he doesn't have a writing credit on is Tear It Down. So the album was produced by Mike Shipley, who was the engineer of Hysteria and Pyromania, and the band themselves. And it was mostly recorded in Joe's new studio. What I'm going to do now is this inlay sleeve to Adrenalize. There's a reason I'm waving it around. It's really good because it does the same as what Hysteria does. So as you'll remember, when Hysteria is released, it then has a little bit of um, narrative about what's happened in the previous four years. Now, I'd forgot entirely that Adrenalize did this as well. And there's a, there's a little almost story of the previous four years here. So I thought rather than me making up and paraphrasing, you know, how they saw the previous four years, we can go full Jack and Ori here. And this is where you can put your feet up. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read out the inlay sleeve. I'm going to test two things here. My ability to read and secondly, my ability to read really small writing. This is what the band themselves say about the build-up and the context of in which this album comes. And once we've um, gone through this, we're then going to start talking about song by song. So it's titled Life at the Top, October 1988, March to 1992. As we sit here and reflect on the last three and a half years, one thing is certain. Nothing, nothing is ever certain. Now, we know that all of you reading this have experienced hardships, and we're sure our story is not much different from what has happened to any of you. But the crucial difference here is that it happened to us twice. They put twice in bold capitals there. After four years between pyromania and hysteria, we vowed that we would never repeat the experience Three years to record, 18 months to tour, waiting to see if Hysteria would even sell enough copies to cover the cost of recording it. Definitely not fun. And on top of that, Hysteria didn't really start selling until a year, a very long year, after we had put it out. No, this was never going to happen again. And by the end of the tour, we were stronger, we were wiser, and more important, we had a plan. A quicker record, one that would take a year to make. We had a couple of song ideas. Tear It Down had been performed on the MTV Music Awards and much to our surprise had gotten a load of radio airplay. So we decided to put it on album five. People were settling down. Some of us got married. One of us even had kids. Takes after his mum in the looks department, thank God. And we had this plan. Well, you know what they say about plans. Things slowed down. We went back to Holland to get the vibe. Nothing there. We moved to Joe's studio in Dublin, but studio bugs and illness delayed us for a couple more months. We decided to write more songs because it was becoming obvious that a quick album wouldn't work. We started hanging with Mutt and the music began to shape and then real life started to intrude. It wasn't easy trying to be creative while one of us was fading away before our eyes. Those months before Steve's death were anything but fun. The clinics, the interventions, the worrying, the realisation that we weren't as strong or as wise as we'd thought, or that having it all and being on top of your profession didn't mean anything when facing a basic human problem. All we could do was watch and hope and wait, and then he was gone. The finality of Steve's death, the end of something that was a part of us all forever, 
was in our way our starting point for this record. It cleared our heads. It woke us up. We knew we had to finish the record to prove that Def Leppard could survive. And you know what? We did. We put down on tape some of the best music we think that we've ever written. The fun is back. We can't wait to take the show on the road. And we learned two very important lessons. One, don't take things too seriously. And two, never make any plans because in Def Leppard, as in life, shit always happens. You know, just going back to that timeline thing there on the on the album sleeve. I mean, I, you know, we're all sitting here waiting excited for this new album without really knowing what's going on in the background. And we're thinking they're just messing about in the studio like they were for Asteria. You know, but, you know, it turns out that when they go back into write, they realise they need time off. So they're not back in until sort of late 89. Then they start talking about Steve and his illness and how they're struggling with that. And then they're giving that leave of absence sort of late uh, 1990, October time, September time. Now, I remember getting um, a magazine from the fan club at the time, and there was a big stop press feature from the 1st of October 1990. And it was Joe basically saying how excited he was that they were back into the studio and they were in for the final recording session. And at the time, I th- that's great news. Little did we realise that the only reason that they put that out was because they booted Steve out for six months. And now they could probably carry on with the minds of fresh, if you like, and get on with the recording of the album on their own without the distraction of them. And, you know, it's quite, it's amazing how secretive they were at the time and how nothing was was going on. And now we realise all that was going on in the background. And it's mind-blowing, really, I think, to what was going on for them and how difficult it must be. And I think that's probably part and parcel of why the album doesn't really get that much promotion at any point, even in the 30 years since. There must have been a, an awful era to go through with that going on in the background. It's not going to be the happiest time in the world. The songs might sound like they were, but no way was that a good time for them. And I could understand why. You know, it's not focused on so much by them because it's just going to bring back, you know, bad memories for them. And I think come 91, you know, supposedly they only had six, six and a half songs finished. So they, they basically flew through the rest of the album to get it finished and done and out. So I think it was just a case to get it done, get it out the door. We're going to have to promote it, get out and tour and let's try and move on really as quick as we can. Yeah, and it's interesting because that personal experience side of things does make a big difference because I think... Sav, uh, Rick Savage just recently sort of come out and said that uh, I saw it somewhere, he's definitely said in an interview that he, he's not keen on Adrenalize and I've seen things with Joe on like official Def Leppard YouTube videos where he's saying, you know, one day he'll hate it and the next day he thinks, you know, it's pretty good and it is, it's the irony, terrible time for them, yeah, us three are talking about it being like peak nostalgia and peak happy times for us, so people's personal experiences and what's going on during an album for us just listening to it them making it will obviously shape how we see that album so then right you know what we're going to do we're going to start going through the first five songs here's a really difficult question for you can anyone tell me what is the first song on Adrenalize track number one will be Let's Get Rocked Let's Get Rocked kicks off the entire Adrenalize album with the question do you want to get rocked? And it immediately sets up the intended fun and escapism of this album. And that's what is mentioned in the inlay to the record sleeve as well. 
It's also released as the first single and is the world's first taste of Def Leppard in the 1990s. And despite the musical, the changing musical climate at the time, it is a worldwide hit, smashing into top tens all over the globe and becoming their biggest hit, certainly in their home country, getting to the number two spot. I was going to go through all of the positions it got in different charts around the world, but the reason I summarise it is exactly what I've just said. It just goes top 10 or top 20 everywhere. You know, it really is a massive hit. Let's get rocked. And I think maybe bigger than we, we remember. It's also accompanied with a snazzy CGI video with a cartoon character in it. Anyone remember what that character's called in the Let's Get Rocked video? Flynn. Flynn, yes, it was. And also the video sees the band performing as a four-piece. It's the only video in which you see that because it's recorded just before Mark's favourite, Vivian Campbell, joins the band. So, I mean, I think Let's Get Rocked probably more than any other song feeds into this whole idea that we were talking about earlier about the build-up and the and the anticipation of Adrenalize more than any other album because it's released, I don't know exactly how many weeks it's released before, but it's at least two or three weeks before the album comes out. I'm sure one of you will be able to tell me exactly what that is. Andy, the floor is yours. Where do we even start talking about Let's Get Rocked? What do we want to say about it? That's a good question. I mean, nowadays, it's probably looked at as being a bit of a unfavorable, unfavorable first single, if you like, purely because of how stupid it is. But I think at the time when that came out, that was all, it was almost like lightning in the bottle, especially in this country. Mm. Because, I mean, I mentioned earlier about them having the support of, uh, of the BBC. You know, and we've just recently had the kit premiere on the BBC Radio 2. But back then, let's get rocked. It's on uh, Radio One as a premiere on the Breakfast Show, the biggest show in the country. So I remember getting the uh, the notification from the fan club at the time saying it's going to be on three days before its release. So I smuggled my Walkman into work, <laughs> hide it under my drawings, and uh, and listened to it. And I've got to say, I loved it straight straight off the bat. I loved it. I thought it actually sounded different to anything that they'd done before. Um, I think it's obviously very commercial, which which is probably the right thing to do because the first song back after five years, there's no way they're going to release that white line. No chance. You know, they've got to start off with something that reflects probably the album, which that song does. And arguably, it's probably a better song on the album than it is a live version, I would say. But uh, yeah, I thought it was a good choice, a really good choice. And, and like you said, it got good reviews all over it, all across the board. You know, in any of the single reviews that I've seen in Kerrang, Metal Hammer, all those kind of places, got good reviews. <clears throat> and it obviously sold really well. Number two, we saw them on top of the pops, the videos everywhere. So, yeah, it was the right choice. I think it starts off the album perfectly with the question, do you want to get rocked? And then brings in that, you know, Phil's, Phil's guitar. And it's an incredible riff. You know, it's simple, but it's effective, like sugar, like kick. Like slang, it's simple, it's effective, it does what it says on the tin. Let's get rocked. And also, I suppose a rock's out of the question, it's just <laughs> absolute genius. <laughs> it certainly is. And it's interesting. You know what? It's really good that you mentioned the um it's really good that we can talk about new Def Lapping music in terms of you both referenced kick there. 
and also you just reference Mark uh, pour some sugar on me. One way in which Let's Get Rocked is obviously similar to both of those songs is it was the last song written for the album. And then it pour some sugar on me, but it wasn't the first single, but it was, you know, the big hit, particularly in, in the States. Kick was recorded after the album was supposedly finished. And, you know, from what we can see in the context of, you know, Death Leopard these days and the way they charted everything, it's gone down pretty well. And then obviously, yeah, Let's Get Rocked was the last song that was written for Adrenalize. The last two songs couldn't be more different um, that were written. Actually, it was White Lightning and Let's Get Rocked. And I do remember saying that Let's Get Rocked was very much written as almost like a healing process of having to do White Lightning, where they were absolutely, you know, they felt terrible after it, uh, you know, obviously like lyrically, which we'll come to um, in a minute, and about it being about Steve and it being a seven-minute song and it being hard work. And, you know, they just wanted to write, I think you said it uh, correct then, it's a stupid song, but good, good, stupid. What I like about it is the sheer amount of novelty <laughs> in it. I think if ever you want to hear a song where they've, they've thrown the entire kitchen sink at the production, then that is it. You know, if you hear that song now, often back then they were saying, we're making stuff to, so that we're, being played with the uh, Mariah Carey's Janet Jackson's as they were big at that point. But now you could hear that song on the radio and to me, to mine, it doesn't sound like it's dated. It sounds unbelievable. You know, the money that must and time that's gone into it, you can hear it, it's all in there. Within everything of it, the production, the effects, it sounds great, even now, I think. I always remember as a, I'm a little bit, even though I look older than both of you, I'm a little bit younger than you. So when it came out, I was... It was about to turn 14 and we were talking about we went to see them on the Adrenalized tour. I always remember thinking, how are they going to do that violin bit? I, I, I was really intrigued about how they would do that live. And then obviously it's just uh, Phil going, you know, if there's one thing that Phil's good at, it's going really, really, really near. So he does that um, really well. Mark, what did you think of the video at the time? What do you think of it now? I love it. I absolutely love it. I think the, the, CGI animation of Flynn is incredibly dated, but the performance footage of the band, they've never looked better. And arguably, they've never looked better since. You know, they Joe's pants alone with the red star <laughs> are, are worth the price of admission. You know, it, it's an incredible video uh, and gives you the flavour, you know, of that, that square stage that they're performing on. The Union Jack, you know, again, it's that it's the red, it's the red, white, and blue in your face. We're Def Leppard, we're British, we're back. Now, funnily enough, um, I've watched the making of the Let's Get Rock video today. There was a Japanese special, uh, that they broadcast, and basically, they're in the warehouse or hangar or wherever it was where they filmed it, and it's the band performing, but they're not performing up the song all the way through, they're doing like little five second bits here and there. They've got them doing different things, no microphone, uh, with a microphone, all different positions. And it looks absolutely painstaking. And they're going through the process of trying to explain what they're going to do when it's finished, when all the animation is in there. And it's and it's funny listening to them because they're saying, we're just going to appear in the chorus. We're not in any of the verses. And the storyboards look vastly different to how the character ended up. I think Mark's right. I mean, it looks awful now. But the storyboards, it looks fantastic. And also, you mentioned the Union Jack stage. That was the original idea for the, in the stage. We were going to have it as a Union Jack. 
but I don't think they could because the lighting and it didn't look right. So that's why they went to the Adrenalize Eye instead. I think they did the right thing though for the Adrenalize Eye because that looks cool. I had the tattoo of it on my leg. The Adrenalize Eye. It's my. It's my. I have two leopard tattoos. I have the X for the X yeah. album, and I have the Adrenalize Eye on my leg at the moment. It's going to be a bigger piece, but uh, yeah, presently. Just the adrenalized arm was the important point to get on. And the stage, the stage going touching before we get to the live stuff, the stage, we all obviously love the idea of seeing them in the round. And in our arenas are smaller than the American arenas anyway. So mm. arguably we got a better show. Um, but that stage is just a gorgeous piece of engineering, piece of design, from the lights to the rig to the you know the sound. There was a brand new sound, um, quadraphonic sound made for it. It's just a beautiful piece of engineering. And to take that around the arenas, not only in the UK, but Europe, and then over to the States. Oh, I think Metallica then ended up using it um, for the third leg of of their tour, if I'm not mistaken. I think the Adrenalize stage looks better than the Hysteria in the round stage did purely because of its design, all the extras that went with it. And when you actually look at it from the floor level, the exterior stage had all those steps in the way. You can't see across to the other side. Adrenalize was, was perfect, I thought, all the way across. I thought it was great. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's one thing I was supposed to say then in terms of, you know, as an album, I think we probably all agree, outside of nostalgia, Adrenalize, not as good as Hysteria. But in terms of the touring of that album and the stage, then I, I, I agree with you. I mean, it does, it, the Adrenalize tour does what the Hysteria tour, tour does and more, where it creates a cool stage based around the the album cover. So, it, you know, it looks great from above the Hysteria in the round. But like you just said then, Andy, it's like they take that, but then, you know, there's all of the angles on it and the slants and everything. And then you've got the, the, the drum riser that goes up during Rocket, wasn't it? And then, like you said as well, then, Mark, you've just got the better sound. One last thing though, on that video that just comes to mind, it was talking then about, you know, like the, like the novelty and the cool, like little things and little tricks and little quirks of the song that's repeated in the video isn't it because there's a bit where the whistle and then the um the microphones turns into like a pair of lips whistling there's cool like little things it's a bit where joe stamps on the stage and then like the stage waves um which is like really cool the light dripping onto rick's symbol yeah he throws throws the microphone up into the light and then then he drips onto the drum kit do you know what? I might go and watch that, watch that video again afterwards. You get me in the mood, Sam, so watch that again. Cool thing about that as well is young, handsome men who were waiting to go and see Def Leppard either for the first time or an improved experience and the second time is that video just immediately puts the idea of Def Leppard playing in the round and they're going to do that again on this tour um, sort of into our minds. And so in many ways, Let's Get Rocked was definitely the whetted the appetite in so many ways for this album and the tour that was was to come before we move on anymore for any more on let's get rocked or we ready to move on to heaven is there is nothing like hearing the band play let's get rocked in a stadium full of people whether it's at Freddie mercury tribute whether it's a download whether it's at don valley when you hear 40 50 70 000 people singing the chorus to Let's Get Rocked all together, nothing like it, nothing like it. You know, hearing it in a stadium, I mean, it's quite 
obviously it's commercial. There's that little contrived bit just after the solo where they just get the uh, the chorus going with the drums, you know, a typical stadium trick, which works every time. And one thing I thought is that I'd read in magazines before seeing him at Don Valley that they were opening with that song. And I thought there's no way that's going to work. It's just too slow. Oh, oh, yeah, it worked. Yeah, 100% it worked. And, you know, broad daylight, no lights, just the song. Yeah, it worked. All right, then. Okay, so track number two on Adrenalize is Heaven Is. So Heaven Is was the fifth track released as a single from Adrenalize. I think it was only released in the UK. It was released on the 22nd of January in 1993 in UK and Ireland. And it reached number 13 and number 24 in those charts, respectively. That's one thing about these singles, with the exception of when we get to tonight later. They all, you know, they all get in the top 20. Pretty, They all get pretty high. Um, it wasn't just like, let's get rocked was a one-off. And then after that, they, they fade away. All of the first few singles... Uh, get pretty high. This is like the fifth one, gets to 13. So, song was written by Steve Clark, Phil Collin, Joe Elliott, Mutt Lang, and Rick Savage. So, Mark, I know that within the Def Leppard community, there's a contingent of people who absolutely adore this song. I like it, but I'm not one of those people who absolutely think it's like one of the best. Are you one of that contingent? No. It's a good song. It's a good song, but I'm not one of the fervent worshippers of it. It's a very well put together song, and and I think Steve came up with that opening riff, didn't he? That the, the jangly riff is is very mm. much a Steve Clark riff. Um, but I don't. I think it's good, and it's a cracker. Straight, you know, it, it flows nicely from "Let's Get Rocked" into "Heaven yeah. Is." Um, but I'm not one of the the zealots of it. It's it's all right. It's a good Def Leppard song. It's like if you op- if you had to describe a Def Leppard song, play them Heaven Is. It's got the big chorus. It's got all the harmonies. Got a nice solo. You know, nice single on chorus. Banging track, but it's a banging track. It's an album track. I don't ever think it should have been a single either. But again, um, I think I think the Adrenalize single campaign went about two steps too far and not two steps behind either <laughs> i waited for you to make that joke every fiber in my body was trying to uh, <laughs> trying to stop myself from that are you right because it's the fifth single so you know you do get a point where maybe it's one single um too far what are your thoughts on this song andy yeah i think when i mentioned earlier that um you know i thought i was a bit disappointed when i heard the album i thought that when you when I, when I got into the Man of Hysteria, I went back, Pyro, back through to On Through the Night. And I think that Adrenalize is a point at where they didn't break any sort of new ground. And I think this is where they sort of were hitting the beats of the previous stuff. You know, and I think heaven is you could chuck it in with Animal and Promises or, or You're So Beautiful and tracks like that. I think it's very much a formulaic song, you know, leopard by numbers almost, if you like. Um, and Wendy said beforehand about the in the prom, the promo were sort of campaign for the album. They're saying they wanted them to be more um, to the point, you know, more direct. I mean, this this song you're into the chorus before you're even a minute in. You know, they don't mess about. They're straight into it, so it is immediate. And I can see why probably they haven't played it live because I think that when you get into the chorus, I think it's just too 
for wash with backing vocals, it's not punchy enough. You know, you look at something like a rocket chorus or an animal chorus, Evanis, <coughs> excuse me, Evanis doesn't come anywhere near those. And I think that's what it's lacking. It's interesting because what I did today is I really wanted to, before we talk about the album, and because it is an album and we're gentlemen of a, a certain vintage that we still probably believe in the concept of an album and you know the way songs um, are relate to each other in the way it goes. I wanted to listen to it from beginning to end to see how it, it ran on um, as an album. And I agree with you, and, and we'll come to it in a minute. The first three songs, they are very instant hissing songs, whether it, to what degree you think they're really good songs or not, it, it differs, but they're all very, very um, instant songs. Do you know what occurred to me when I was walking down to the BP garage today to buy some milk? Didn't buy two pints, by the way, because it's too heavy when I got skinny arms. I was listening to it. It is mentioned that the Brian Adams album from 1991, the Waking Up the Neighbours, it's got a very similar sound to Def Leppard because obviously mm. Mutt Lang produced it. I've always sort of thought, yeah, I could see it a little bit, but I don't think they're necessarily interchangeable. I don't think you could take songs off Adrenalize and put them on that Brian Adams album. And, and I think Def Leppard still sound like Def Leppard, Brian Adams still sound like Brian Adams. The one exception, no really struck home to me today. I haven't listened to Heaven Is for probably like, you know, a couple of years, to be honest, was the verse part. Go back and listen to the verse of Heaven Is and you can absolutely imagine Brian Adams singing that part. As soon as it gets into the chorus, not on your Nelly. It's just, it's Def Leppard back and vocals and overdrive, you know, know, dubbed over 40 million times or whatever it is. Can you remember the video to this? Joe Elliott hates it, apparently. I don't think it makes any sense whatsoever. I think the guy who's supposed to be some kind of villain just looks ridiculous. It's the cutout one, is it? Yeah. Yeah. The cutout like, one. Yeah, dreadful. It's like Take <laughs> On uh, Aha, Take On Me. Was it Take On Me? Is that the one? Yeah. yeah that yeah. song? That's oh, like yeah. that. It's rubbish. No, rubbish. Yeah, it's the one with lots of cutouts and there's like a villain. But it, interesting you say about the Aha one because the fella who directed Let's Get Rocked it's the same fella who directed the Aha Take On Me video, which does still look really good, actually, to be fair, because it's pencil drawing, so it doesn't really age. It's like it's normal animation rather than reliance on the technology of the day. And then also he did the, I think you mentioned it earlier, earlier, Mark, it was the the Dire Straits one, was it? Um, Money For Nothing, that, you know, that, that CGI video. Now, those two are interesting because... Money for nothing obviously looks dated, but it still looks all right because you just think, well, that's what's around at the time. I'd argue Let's Get Rock does that as well. But heaven is, I think they've just, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite work. It's a weird one, heaven is, because I've written like lots of notes to, to chat about this. I haven't really got anything for heaven is. It's not a bad song. I don't dislike it. It's good. It's fine. But I don't think there's really much to talk about in terms of this song would you agree with that or have you got reams of notes and further things well, to say or is, is it time to move on it's, you know it's an album track filler it it fits really well with the spirit of the album but it is just a filler in my opinion you know that that second spot on an album is quite important and yeah it doesn't it certainly doesn't uh, follow sort of uh, to the heights that let's get rocked it's tearing down in song number two. Oh yeah yeah We'll move on to track number three, right? Okay, I've been doing this for nearly two years. I've spent two years trying to not talk about this song, but I think I'm going to be more positive about it than I ever thought I would 
and I've got for myself personally, I've got I've got a clear view on what my issue is with this song. But it's, I want to hear yours too because you know what, you might this might be your favorite Def Leppard song. I don't know. Okay, so "Make Love Like a Man," written by Steve Clark, Phil Collins, Joe Elliott, Mutt Lang. No Rick Savage involvement on this one. It's the second single that was released from Adrenalize. Um, came out on the 26th of June, 1992. The video is the first to feature Mark Cookson's favorite man on earth, Vivian Campbell. And again, this song does pretty well commercially. It breaks into top 20s, top 30s, and top 40s in many, many countries across the world. So it does it does well. Um, in this song as well, Phil Collin is credited on the album notes with the Cockney rhyming rap in this song. Andy, I'm intrigued to see where this conversation takes us when discussing Make Love Like a Man. Sam New, that's why he isn't on the credits. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, I was actually quite surprised in looking back at uh, even reviews of the single and the album that, that it, wasn't, it, was, it wasn't even torn apart by the reviewers. You know, they, they thought it was raunchy, glam. I mean, they've got no idea of Def Leppard as a glam band. You know, jump forward 30 years and listen to some of the stuff now. But that's mm. how it was described, and it was never looked at, or it didn't seem to be looked at as a bad as a bad song. But 100%, it was a, a poor choice for a second single, I think. I think, you know, they've done the stupid sort of lyrics already with Let's Get Rocked, and I think they should have followed it up with something... Um, Maybe a little bit more, maybe even tear it down. Who knows? But I think it was a bad choice because I think that just cemented the uh, the reputation of sort of a nineties party rock band. So I think it was a bad choice from that point of view. But having said that, you know, when I went to see it and I saw it live for the first time, it went down really well and it did sound good live. And that's probably one of the reasons why it's much maligned now is that it's played, been played virtually on every tour since ninety two. And when you sort of get into the era of um, the shorter set lists come the 2000s, and one of the songs is Make Love Like a Man, I know that that sort of uh, sticks in majority of fans' throats. And when they play it, I must admit, I'm, I'm disappointed as well. When I look around me, and everybody loves it. It goes down really well. And I, and I don't understand why. But and to me, you know, it's, it's another sort it's got it's got pour some sugar on me vibes about it as well. It, you know, the, the chorus, the, uh, sorry, the, the verses, the drums, the little stabs of guitar. It's, it's just like pour some sugar on me. And also go on later in the album and it's just like I want to touch you. They maybe should have brought that forward as well and swapped them over because that's a better version of pour some sugar on me than make love like a man is. So not my favourite. So don't do a podcast on it. People keep daring me to. Just before we move on to Mark, you say, just, just let, let's just pin this down. You say it's not your favourite. What, what, what is it then that makes it not your favourite? Or what is it specifically? I think it's the cheesy, the cheesy lyrics of it all. Lyrics. That, that, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Moving over, moving over to Mark, who told, uh, told me ahead of this recording that he might say some controversial things. Um, he hasn't had any major, ma- major controversial bombs yet. I'm, I'm wondering if it's about to come now. I don't know. Let's find out, Mark. Make Love Like a Man, your favourite ever Death Leopard song. You're going to play it, it at your funeral. It is possibly the worst song that Leopard have ever recorded. Ever. It, it's execrable. 
it's there is there is no defending this song at all. The only shining point of it is that it was the man's debut in the video. You know, <laughs> it's a good performance video. Other than that, it's undefensible. And they can say, "Oh, it was ironic. It was ironic." No, it really wasn't. Don't tell me a lie. It wasn't ironic. You thought you were Motley Crue. Motley Crue wouldn't be ashamed of those lyrics. Nikki Six probably got those lyrics on the fax machine from Joe back in the day, laughed, and then wrote Girls, Girls, Girls. And there's no way that that's a 1992 lyric or 91 lyric. Not at all. It, that sounds like one of Joe's 14-year-old lyrics from 1978. 76. And as for Phil's Cockney rhyming rap, there's no Cockney rhyming in that rap. It's just shit. Let's have a confession time here as well. I'm going to confess something to you both now. Don't worry, it's not too it's not too embarrassing or anything. But I'm just interested to see if it's a confession you share or whether you were all over it. Even though the inlay says about Phil's Cockney rhyme and rap, okay, I don't think I read it when I was 14. You know that that small detail, or they did, they just it just went over me. I had no idea until I saw that video that it was Phil doing the Phil part. I just thought it was Joe. Now that I listened to it, and when I listened to the tab, I can then clearly hear the, the difference between them. But this was before, I think, or certainly to me, it was before it was public knowledge that Phil is able to make himself sound quite a lot like Joe and, like, you know, the way they they, they uh, merged all of their voices to create that Def Leppard sound. So I had no idea that that was actually Phil doing the... Uh, the Cockney rhyme and bit that didn't have any apples and pears in absolute disgrace. Um, did you two, did you two both, I bet you two both knew, didn't you? No, no. I, I kept going back through the song trying to pick out where it was. Yeah, no, no it, it, you can't. It's, again, it's, it's the Def Leppard sound. It's the voices intertwined so much because a lot of the time on the records and in live, Phil's doubling up Joe's voice anyway. Mm. So it really, their voices intermesh so well, which point for future discussion, when I'm sure we get around to it, is probably why Adrian Smith didn't get the job. Because his voice is very, very similar to Phil Collins. Oh, Uh, right. And it might have been a very, it might have been too much over Joe. You know. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's interesting because I know I know that a lot of why Viv was chosen was because of his his vocal ability, and then I know that he seems he tends to do a lot of the higher stuff um, these yeah. these days as well, and his voice is different enough that you know it doesn't sound too much like Joe and Phil. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point, that Mark. You touched on it, Andy, right? And I I, I really I've really tried to distill this song, okay, and. So back in the day, I used to right, bear with me a minute. Here. So back in the day, right, I used to I used to be an English teacher, and one of the questions I used to set for English literature A level kids, uh, anyone outside of the UK, like 16, 17, 18 year olds, was used to teach a Shakespeare play called The Merchants of Venice, and one of the questions that I used to set, or one of the essay questions, was because The Merchants of Venice contains anti-Semitism or racism, does that make it? an anti-Semitic play or, or racist play, okay? And what you've just said, Mark, about everywhere you read, the band will say 
this is tongue in cheek, that this isn't, and actually says it, and I've got the like the vinyl box set bucket down there, and actually says about this isn't macho chest beating lyrics, it's taking the piss pretty much of people who are like that. That Shakespeare question comes back to me going, just because it's got a narrative voice that is actually sort of acting like that, does that mean it really is this sort of macho, sort of sexist type thing? I mean, personal property that we come to later on in, in the album is, is, is a whole other discussion, but in the same field. Put it this way, I know I read something just the other day saying that Joe, one of the reasons Joe doesn't particularly like singing this song anymore is because he doesn't like the lyrics. I think they, they know that they've aged quite badly. And I wonder if one of the reasons Sav doesn't like this song, <laughs> like you said, he swerved this one. He didn't as well. But it is a good song live. Would you agree? If you just take the lyrics out of it in terms of like, like Andy's totally right. It absolutely storms it live. Go back and watch the um, Don Valley footage from 1993 and watch when that song comes on, the crowd go mad. And if you take out the awful lyrics... It's actually a really upbeat, rocking, good song. Is yeah, it just the it. lyrics? It is just the lyrics, uh, and and you know, but you can't escape. Mm. Make love like a man. I'm a man. That's what I am. It's it, my daughter who's fifteen could write lyrics much better than that. In fact, she could have wrote lyrics better than that when she, ten years ago. You know, but yet yeah, live it goes down brilliantly. And again, it's the chorus, it's the chant along, it's it's what Leopard are good at. It's those big stadium choruses for people to sing along to. Just this time, it's singing along to something that's a little bit shit. I think as well. I they they knew they knew full well before this album came out what was going to happen because they were trying to get in front of it by talking about it in all the promo before anybody even heard it. So they knew what was going to happen, and you know. Nowadays, you would never get away with writing a song like that, and they barely did back then. But honestly, I can't believe that that nobody sat down over three and a half years of recording and thought, hang on, maybe we should change some of this. And it's not even about being a man, it's about being a man. All right, then. So, lyrically bad, but you know, does go down quite well live. Probably, I think we've established. Not the three of ours favorite Death Leopard song. There is one that's worse. Maybe we'll discuss that all night. I think we're about to take a significant upward trajectory now in terms of song quality. Certainly what I think. I'll be interested to see what you think. And the next song that we're going to talk about is track number four, and that is the song Tonight. That song is yet another single, and it repeats the hysteria trick of really front-loading singles on the first side of an album. So every song so far has been a single, and we're on to track four, written by Steve Clark, Phil Collin, Joe Elliott, Mutt Lang, and Rick Savage. Okay, I read something. This is one of the oldest songs that end up on Adrenalize, and it's interesting because I read one thing today saying that it was first demoed in 1988. But then literally 10 minutes before we came on, I picked up this old fan club magazine. I don't know if either of you got that. And there's a bit in it where Joe is saying that some of this was report, where he's arguing against the fact that people have said that some of these songs, oh, he's got it there. Some of these songs are really old. And he actually says nothing was recorded 
or, or demoed or anything until after he's finished touring in 1989. But regardless, I think Two Nights is certainly widely accepted as one of the first songs that was written for the Adrenalize writing sessions. So it was released in March 1993, and it's the last single to chart. It does, to a lesser degree than all of the other singles that have come before, only reaches 34 while others are reaching the teens and, you know, single figures. So maybe it is a mark of the waning power of tonight. But even though commercially and in the charts, it doesn't do as well as, you know, the song we were just talking about, for example, Make Love Like a Man. Um, Mark, I'll come to you. Does that signify that this is a lesser quality song to you because of its more lowly placing in the charts? Not at all. I think it's um, a very strong song. Certainly, it places well whenever it, whenever any of the fan groups are talking about the album. A lot of people mention tonight as one of their favourites. And from what I recall, it was actually written for Hysteria. It might not have been demoed or or recorded, but it was certainly written for Hysteria, and Love Bites took its place. Um, it's it's a cracking song. I don't like the intro. That the it, you could, I could get rid of the U's all day long, and just start with that plaintive guitar. Because hmm. um, from that point on, it's an absolute stormer. It's a proper power ballad. Lyrics on point, performance on point, production superb. It's one of the high points on the album. If you get rid of the U's. Um. But it, this is yeah. the bit of the start where it goes, ooh, yeah. right at the start, and then and, no and it just fades that. out, and then the, yeah. the guitar comes in, yeah. Yeah, so it should just start with that with that flamenco-type guitar. Um, and the, the acoustic version of it is really good, really good. This is the band at their absolute peak of power ballad writing. You know, it's a really, really good song. And one that I'm surprised didn't get more critical acclaim at the time. It was almost thrown away as, oh, tonight, that's that's the ballad on side one. You know, but it's mm. a really, really good song. For my money, it should have been up for an Ivan Novello. Good stuff. Okay. And Andy, what do you think? I think I think this is this is the best ballad they've ever done. I think it's better than Love Bites, bringing the heartbreak, whatever. I think this is the best one they've done. And I think it just shows how strong that sort of period of writing was when you go from uh, 83 to, to 92. You know, it just shows the depth of quality that they had within them to do that. And and what Mark just said was right, that supposedly it lost out to Love Bites have been on Hysteria, but they didn't demo it till uh, later on in 88. And I think that when you listen to this, that you can tell, especially if you listen to that demo version, that it that it sounds like it's come from the Pyromania era. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's almost like a version, a slowed down version of Fooling, if you like, quiet. Yeah. And then with a really heavy chorus, and also, I mean, like, if you listen to that demo, the guitar solo is unbelievable on that. The sound. I mean, I think that's probably one of my little criticisms of Adrenalize is that the drum sound, that computerized drum sound, doesn't sound as big as what it did on Pyromania or Asterius. So it kind of dilutes things a little bit. But yeah. Easily, easily my favourite ballad that they've done. Great song. 
And it's interesting because there are a lot of versions of tonight knocking around, whether it be demos or an acoustic version or an acoustic water and all version, which I recall is on one of the B-sides. It might actually be on the CD to tonight itself. Uh, I'm not sure, but there's loads of different versions. And whatever version you listen to, it still more or less sounds the same. You know, like the production values are a little bit different, but it's that the core of that song and the quality of that song just remains. And I believe on that as well, the, the guitar intro that you were talking about, Andy, and the bit that sounds like a fooling or could sound like fooling, that's Rick Savage playing that. So mm-hmm. I've got a feeling if he's playing it, I would imagine he's the one who, who wrote yeah, yeah. Uh, that guitar part. What Tonight does as well, I think, and uh, let me know if you agree with this or not. And the thing that sort of sets it apart is that even though it's a ballad, it's not a sort of syrupy or saccharine sort of like ballad. And I don't say that in a critical way, but like say something like, have you ever needed someone so bad? That's a very syrupy song. I love that song as well. But tonight's different because it falls in that that area of Def Leppard songs, which you can't quite put your finger on, but just a bit moodier, like a sort of Too Late for Love or, or something something like that, where it's just what, it's not a song that you would dance to at a wedding, but it's still a ballad, but it's got like a sort of darker, um, mood to it. No, I think that's that's perfect. And actually, when we talk about album placement before, it does exactly what it needs to do. It brings you down from the up. It's that mid stage. It gives you know you start with Let's Get Rocked, you go up, you go up again with Make Love Like a Man, and tonight is that step down to say, okay, now we're going to get a. Li- We've had the party. Now let's get a little bit more serious. You know, we're coming back down, back down the hill, as it were, um, and, and sets you up for what comes next. Um, but it, yeah, it's it's a great song. You know, you can't, no matter where you put that on the album, it would have been a great song. But where it is right before White Lightning is perfect placement. That is an example of perfect placement for a track. What Mark just said there about the placement of the album is absolute. The placement of the song on the album is absolutely spot on. And what surprised me as the single started coming out is that that normally that position there is the sort of um, the, the big ballad of the album, the one that they're going to release as a single. That's going to be the, the focal point, slowly of the of, of the marketing campaign, if you like. So it surprised me that that was left so late to be released as a single, and also that they hardly played it live either. You know, they did it acoustically. Uh, a bit, a bit on the Adrenalize tour, but it was Have You Ever, which ended up being the main one that they went with. There was two from three that was going to go on Adrenalize when it came to ballads. It was tonight. Have you ever needed someone so bad? And then the other song that they didn't complete and didn't put it on was When Love and Hate Collide. For that album at that time, do you think they picked the right two from three? Yes, yeah, I do. Uh... When Love and Hate Collide, again, is a is a great, great song, but it needed to breathe on its own. To mm. Have You Ever Needed Someone So Bad is a wonderfully huge power ballad. You know, it's you look at that footage from Don Valley and boom, it goes off. You know, as soon as that, mm. as soon as Viv kicks into that, it's it's amazing. Um so both of those, because they're so very different tonight and have you ever needed definitely the right choice because mm. when love and hate collide is as big 
as Have You Ever Needed, uh, but has the vocal of Tonight. So it's almost like the best of both worlds. So to put that on at the expense of either of them would have been folly. So absolutely save that for Vault, 100%. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, if you listen to the demo of um, When Love and I Collide, it's nowhere near as good, I think, as it ended up when they ended up finishing off properly. So, yeah, they definitely made the right decision. All right, okay, good. So, So we talked about this song preparing us for the next track. So we will get on to the next and final track on this side, and that is White Lightning. The final track on side one is the album's epic track coming in at over seven minutes, seven minutes and three seconds when I am checked this morning. And it's lyrically basically tackling the death of Steve Clark in its subject matter. It's a Colin Elliott Lange, uh, Lange, Lange and a Savage composition. And this song's something special, isn't it? This is right up there with Dio, The Hunter and Gods of War is one of the one of the best sort of epic tracks that they've that they've ever released. Um and I think just going back to one of your your uh, earlier podcasts that you did, I think the parallels of this are there to be seen with something like Desert Song as well. You know, it's mm. a song that was musically written uh, a few years beforehand, and then they finished it off afterwards when they ended up being inspired by somebody that died, which in this case was Steve. Obviously, Desert Song was Mick Ronson, so mm. you know, there's a few parallels to be drawn from there. But but musically, it, it could possibly be one of the most complex musical pieces that they put together in their entire career but uh, no great song wow i mean you just it it always whenever i'm doing a playlist a leopard playlist whether it's half an hour 45 minutes four hours what have you white lightning is one of the tracks that i will absolutely go to it is epic in every sense of the word um Lyrically, I'm sure it was an absolute exorcism for Joe and mm. Sav to get those lyrics out. Um, they're pointed. They tell you exactly, you know, what their state of mind is. Um, for anybody who's had to live with an alcoholic or someone with an issue, an addiction issue, and see them going down, it's almost like this. Please read these, you know. Please read mm. these and. It is oh, it's just an incredible piece. It's, you get a lump in the throat every time you hear it, um, especially if, like for those of us who are diehard, long-term fans of the band. You cannot divorce it from Steve. It's a tricky one, but as a song, which is what we're here to talk about, it is absolutely flawless and must have been so so, so difficult for Phil to play in a Steve style on Steve's gear to record this song. You know, that the in, the intro, the solo intro to this song was played on Steve's favourite Les Paul through Steve's favourite amp. I genuinely would be very interested to know how Phil got through that. But then the song is a piece, it just grows... It grows, it grows. Uh, and it, it sounds as fresh today as it did the day I first listened to his Analyze. You know, I remember, um, you know, back in the in the days of the old official site and the official forum, 
there was there was a thread dedicated entirely to the intro white line and people were picking out the hidden voices in there there's little help me's and all sorts of stuff if you, you go to really loud to hear it but yeah they're in there but you've got to go really really loud and it's, it's perfect and it, it is it is i know it's a, a terrible subject matter and at the time they tried to play down the fact that it was about steve they spoke about yeah. Janis Joplin and people like that. It's only in later years that they've, they've acknowledged that it was about Steve. I don't know why they didn't say that at the time. But it's the perfect way to do a kind of tribute to it because it isn't a nice subject. They could not have written a happy song to do something like that about the way that he went. It is mm. perfect. It, it's a great song. And, it, and it's got a message. You know, not so many developing songs do, but that one does. And it's a personal message as well to them. You know, and playing it live, they've never played it live since the Adrenalized Tour. Supposedly, they were going to dig it out in the 2000s. I think on the Rock of Ages Tour, maybe they rehearsed it, but, but they never did. But I think that they should dig it out at some point and play it again. Definitely should. Well, I suppose if you were going to see it as being reflective of Steve in a more positive way, then having a seven-minute song with loads of cool guitars in is um, definitely a way to pay some sort of a tribute uh, to it, definitely. Right. That brings us to the bit you've both been waiting for. Okay, this is where, you know, we're all going to take our shirts off and have a wrestle. Or are we? Are we, are we just, just going to agree straight away? By the way, I will go full democracy on this and, you know, um, vote, voting and what have you. None of us will have two votes. No John Lennon stuff going on here. So what we need to do now is we've just discussed the first five songs on Adrenalize. So what we need to do is we need to agree as a collective to pick one song from this side that would go on Def Leppard's ultimate Def Leppard playlist. Just to put it into context, the one album we've discussed so far um, was Retroactive. And if memory serves me correct, off side one, Desert Song was picked. Um, and off side two, it was Ride into the sun, the version that's on retroactive. So you don't need to let the balance of the playlist um, manipulate or motivate your thinking. You can just go with what you think. So you've got to pick one song. Essentially, you've got to pick the best song from side one. Andy, I'll come to you first. What are you picking and why? Uh, without doubt, this is probably the easiest one we're going to do. White Lightning. White Lightning, by far the best track on side one by far one of the best tracks they've ever made in their entire career, without doubt. And what surprised me about um, reading back on old reviews today was White Lightning was getting criticised for being too long and too uh, plodding. Only Rescued by Production was one of the quotes. I can't believe it. It's a great song. This is easy. White Lightning. So, some seven-minute songs or eight-minute, nine-minute songs sound, feel that long when you're listening to them. White Lightning doesn't. White Lightning doesn't feel like a seven-minute song. It, it, it you know, you, you, you're gutted when it finishes. You, you know, you, I, I could easily have half as long again, and it would still hold me interest definitely. So yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. So you've gone for White Lightning. I think Mark's about to go for Make Love Like a Man, but let's let's find out. Mark, <laughs> what song would you pick? Oh, it's got to be White Lightning. Um, with tonight following very swiftly on the coattails, but uh, White Lightning, hands down. I concur, gentlemen. 
So it's it's 3-0 to White Lightning. That was a nice, easy discussion. And I don't really need to add anything to it. You've just discussed both of you how great that song is, song is, and I fully agree with you. So White Lightning goes on the Def Left Pod ultimate playlist. Okay, so well, it's quite a heavy start. So I I wonder if it's going to carry on this way and just, you know, Desert Song, White Lightning, you know, rather to the sun's obviously a little bit lighter in mood, but it'd be interesting to see whether it carries on this way with people always picking the sort of heavier, sort of darker songs, which would probably be quite a surprise for people who aren't massively into Def Leppard and think it's all pour some sugar on me, which is great, by the way, and what have you. I have deprived you both of the chance to talk about side two, song by song. And Andy, I was terrible to you. I know that you particularly wanted to discuss side two, but I had a real problem because the other two guests on what are going to be the second part of this, they had different views on the side as well. So I just, I literally just tossed the coin. I thought someone's going to hate me. Um, so I've just, you know, I've just gone for it. So here's a free hit to any of you to talk about anything that you want on side two, if you want. Is there any pearls of wisdom or opinions or anything at all, Andy, that you want to give us about side two of Adrenalize? I think the only reason I mentioned side two was it's probably a lot more difficult to talk about than side one. <laughs> you know, side one's quite easy really, with all the singles and the good songs on that one. I think, you know, one of the things on the, on side two, again, just following on with the theme of hitting all the right beats, stand up, you know, it's, it's another hysteria. But interestingly, there's a there's a demo kicking around of that on YouTube. I don't know if you've heard it or not, no. which supposedly features Steve. It's only about a minute and a half or a couple of minutes clip. But that's worth having a listen to on there. And, you know, that's another song never played live. And I guess that's probably because they've already got Hysteria sitting in the set list. You know, they're not going to swap Stand Out. There's Hysteria out and put Stand Up in there, are they? So, and also going back to the stuff that we were talking about before, about tracks coming from, you know, earlier in the career, personal property comes from uh, a, a sound check, supposedly, from the Asteria tour. That was written back then as well. So that's another little idea that they had kicking around from quite a few years before, which follows on with the theme of the whole album, of course, with Tear It Down as well, later on, which, you know, I guess that's a question you're going to ask people, is which one you're going to prefer of that one as well? The B-side version or the, yeah, uh, or yeah. the, the, the version that's on, on Adrenalize. Mark, I'm not going to come to you in a second, and Andy will come back. We come back as well, um, no problem. Andy just said something there. There's a bit in this album where you go tonight, White Lightning, and then Stand Up, Kick Love into Motion. If you if you got it on a record, you've got to turn it over. But if you're on CD or whatever, you find those three songs run into each other. Is that the strongest part of the album? Do you think, Mark? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a very it's three. Very adult rock songs, very well crafted rock songs. They flow together. Like I said, it's that step. It's the the step down from Make Love Like a Man to Tonight, then the step down again to White Lightning, and then you get a step back up for Stand Up, and then you get another piece of trash after Stand Up. You know, which is personal property. Personal property. Yeah. Absolutely dreadful song, but again, it, it gives you that step. You're you're being brought back up to something a bit lighter, like a palate cleanser after a meal, you know. Um, but those three tracks, dead center, perfect. You know, it's it's prime adult orientated rock. 
which is what Def Leppard should have been doing in 1992 and did in, in, in some respects. If you take out, you swap out, take Make Love Like a Man out, take Personal Property out, stick, um, oh, I don't know, well, you can, you can make it a nine track album and then you could, it's, it's a really stronger, it's a stronger album. If you lose Make Love Like a Man and Personal Property, it's a stronger album. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's adult orientated rock, which was put out just as the grunge wave was breaking. This album had been released a year earlier, say. So, say, mm. you know, say we lost Steve in 1990 and this was released in, in March 91. It would have easily have been bigger than the Black Album and the Use Your Illusion albums. It would have been an absolute monster. It would have been a 15 million album rather than a 7 million album. Mm. It was released at the wrong time. Uh, we still got a good run. And obviously in the UK and Europe, the band did massive guns, you know, and arguably, I would say, defined the band's position in the UK and Europe. Um, but it was a year, a year out of date, you know. But if you lose those two, let's just say, if you lose those two playful songs, it would be nice. Mm. So if you lose the two playful songs, it's a very, very cohesive piece of adult rock. Even with Let's Get Rock and you know and tear it down. It's it's a it's a beautiful album in itself. Do I skip personal property at times? Maybe. But there are times <laughs> when I let it play through. You know, but I wanna touch you, as we said before, is it's it's pour some sugar on me remix. You know, it's updated, it's it's a really, really good song. And I would say the best video from Adrenalize, because it captures them in that live environment yeah. with the quick cuts. Um, and again, would those live gigs have been as good with John Sykes as a member? Would those live gigs have been as good with Adrian Smith as a member? Or Huey Lucas? Huey Lucas was far too young, you know, and coming from nowhere to have the experience of the Def Leppard machine and the gigs, mm. you know. But Viv, I'm a big flag waver, that's no big secret, but he, he adds so much energy to the performances. Yeah. Um, his debut, his, well, he's not debut, his, his, his worldwide debut at yeah. Freddie Mercury, he's the one that's moving most on the stage. Yeah, He's also the one that, and it's a criminal thing that I want to see revised. He's the one that doesn't get his, his solo shown on Now I'm Here. Joe literally introduces yeah, yeah. him. There's Vivian Campbell, and they concentrate on Sav and Brian May, while Viv's at the front of the stage blasting it out. Um, and that, that, But he adds that energy, and that energy is carried through to the tour. And as I said, and I think for me, but again, I'm, it may be just because I'm a Viv apologist or, you know, Viv, Sheer or whatever, that we've talked about the band being a little bit dour and dealing with what they were dealing with during the making of and the yeah, promo yeah. for the album. And it's when they get Viv in and he injects that life and he injects that energy that the band seems to get that joy back. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that playing live was, was a release for them as well because they hadn't played live at that point in four years. 
but just to get out and play gigs again was probably a massive release. But that energy that, that Viv injects into the band in general, I think, really hit on it. Because Joe says, and I think the quote is something like, we knew he had to be British, we knew he had to be good, but he had to be the right fit. Yeah. You know? And I don't think, well, John Sykes is the walking ego, so he definitely wouldn't have been a white, right fit. Adrian was just coming out of the Maiden machine, as well as his playing style is very, very bluesy. And with a voice very, very similar to Phil's. So ultimately, whilst it was probably a big name that they thought, oh, Adrian would be really good because they were all pals. You know, we played with Phil back in the late 70s in East London. Um, but he would have been technically on paper a brilliant fit. But when it came down to it, I don't think Adrian wanted to kind of do that either. Mm. Um, and then, as I said, Huey Lucas was far too young and, and and possibly wouldn't have had that experience that the guys needed to be that fit. Um, so I've gone completely off tangent, but it, I'm sure it'll get there in the end. But um, No, not, not at all, because it's like what we said at the beginning as well. Viv doesn't feature on Adrenalise, but he comes a big part of the Adrenalise story. And, you know, the band grow with him in it. He grows being part of, you know, Def Leppard and it culminates in that 1993, you know, Don, Don Valley show. And like, you know, the high point of that, as far as I'm concerned, is the, the solo to Love Bites, which is, or the extended solo and end bit yeah. to Love Bites, which obviously Viv plays with his cool, like really like weird loose guitar thing that he does. That it makes it look like it's the easiest yeah. thing in the world. So I don't think you have gone off on a tangent at all, Mark. I think it's all, it, it does all relate back to each other. Andy, I'll give you the last word. What are your concluding thoughts then on Adrenalize? I think, you know, we can eat, we can talk about it being released one or two years too late. But they were so far down the road anyway, what could they do? You know, they've got to get the album out, they've got to, they've got to release it. But I think despite that, that especially um, in England, maybe even Europe as well, when you look at that whole cycle from when the album came out, to the Don Valley show, to Retroactive, and then Vault, and then when Love and Eight Collide, they should have become a stadium band in this country from that point. Because if you, if you look at a parallel, if you look at Bon Jovi as an example, 1993, you've got the Don Valley Stadium gig. 1993, Bon Jovi, Milton Keynes. 94, Bon Jovi, Greatest Hits, Always the Single. 95, Def Leppard, Vault, When Love and Eight Collide, just as successful as always. This era, I know that Fans in other countries, especially America, look on it less favourably. But for us, this was our time, if you like. You know, America had the pyro here in hysteria. We've had hysteria and now adrenalise. They should have been hitting the stadiums. This was a massive stepping stone to them being something bigger than I think they eventually became with the Slang album. You know, I think think the the popularity here was was just off, off the scale. You know, from, from everywhere, from all the media, from radio, from tally, from magazines. You know, the coverage they got was unbelievable. The success they had was unbelievable. So whilst the album, yeah, seems a little bit dated, I still think it did well for them and gave them that stepping stone. And they were well aware of that anyway, because when you look at what happened towards the end of the uh, adrenalized period, they were often talking about how nobody likes us, whereas 
hypozemeroids and no more let's get rocked and all this kind of stuff they were well aware and i think that's what led into the retroactive album into being more diverse into being a bit more uh, organic and for me they should have ended up being a lot bigger than they were come 96 and the slang album i think i think i think the adrenalized album paved the way for that good times and positive times i don't know if it's one that was free certainly share favorably it may not be a perfect album and um, we, we haven't looked aside to yet there, you know it does have its faults but nonetheless it's one that i know that you two are really keen to talk about and i was as well and one that a lot of us have got a lot of joy out of over the years so go and watch let's get rocked on youtube go and listen to whatever songs you want on adrenaline skip the ones that you're not keen on focus on the ones that you do like mark andy it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. It's been really, really good. First time we've ever spoke. And it's been really good to speak to new people about Def Leppard. You are more than welcome on again. Controversial opinions or not, I don't mind. Bring it on. It's all good. Because it's it, the thing is, it's passionate and it's heartfelt and it's genuine. And clearly massive Def Leppard fans. And I'm sure everyone will have really enjoyed listening to everything that you've had to say. So, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, mate.